0: And gospel with Dr. Halista Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Hey, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. What I'd like to do today, again, is go over the the teaching and the newsletter, because I think it's an important teaching, not so much in the sense that I'm going to give you a lot of answers. You, If you're like me, you've, you've had lots of questions about the end of days, about the tribulation, about what the rapture is. And then as you study Torah and you study the prophets, you realize, well, rapture really isn't an accurate understanding of of end times, that somehow this thing got inserted in there that really leads away from an understanding of the resurrection of the dead and how we enter into the millennial kingdom and any time it seems that scriptures disagree with one another, what we have to realize is there's no disagreement in the scripture. There's a disagreement inside of us. We're not understanding everything yet, and so it's our job to seek the truth, to study the foundational truths that are going to lead us to a better understanding. And stri- instead of trying to superimpose uh, a fairy tale ending on something. Because with that fairy tale ending, it seems like a lot of people feel less obligated to walk out their salvation. They they think you know grace is the answer to everything, and therefore they're not really learning how to be servants in the kingdom. They're not preparing their resumes to serve King Messiah in the millennium. And we're not done, you know, at the resurrection of the dead. We're not done. There's still much more to be done. And that question, as we ask some of the the obvious things like, okay, there's clearly a supernatural existence after the resurrection of the dead. But there's also clearly a very natural existence. As we read some of the other passages, we realize, well, this doesn't sound like much has changed, except the adversary is bound and everything's going to be wonderful. You know, people won't be fighting and arguing and carrying on with one another. What's the truth? Will, you know, we be taken up in the resurrection of the dead and live in the presence of Adonai? Or will we be living for a thousand years on a very natural earth that's, you know, in the process of being repaired? And you know me, um, if I ask a question, there's a really good possibility the answer is yes. There might be a way of putting the, the pieces together rather than artificially making the two pieces opposed or versus one another. But often that's how a denomination gets started. That might be how religion gets started. We, we fall into the either-or mode instead of saying my viewpoint is incomplete, let me not make up my mind until I have searched all the scriptures, and I can see that they reconcile with all being true without having to cast aside certain scriptures. Because most of the time the, the scriptures we're tossing out because we don't understand, they don't fit with what we want the end of the story to be, so we just toss them on out of there, or we pin it on some other person or people group. You know, this wonderful stuff is going to happen to us, but to those people, something horrible is going to happen. I don't think we have to do that. I don't think we have to toss the scriptures we don't like. I think if we're patient, uh, again, if we staff the carnival rites and we keep working out in the field of the word, then eventually those those passages will begin to reconcile with one another. And we don't have to say either or. Uh, We can say this and this. In Hebrew, you say, gum the gum, gum the gum, this and this. These two things, they go together. He's giving me pieces of the same picture. They're like pieces of a puzzle. So I don't have to choose one piece of the puzzle and create a doctrine or expectation on that one piece of the puzzle. I can just keep working, just keep working. And so eventually all these pieces will fit together. And anything that's left unclear, I'm sure Messiah will clear right up when he returns, which is what we want him to do. So let's look at our working text, which is in the Song of Songs, chapter four, verse eight, where he says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. And this is not the first time that Israel is seen as a bride in her relationship with the Holy One. In this case, the relationship is uh, the Holy One, but describing the relationship to her Messiah to the sent one of the father. And the the where it is thought in the Jewish tradition that this identification of Israel as a bride arose is going to be at the revelation at Mount Sinai, at the giving of the 10 words of the 10 commandments. We know that Moses led the people to the mountain. And this is understood as Israel, the bride, being led out by Moses to meet the bridegroom. And so from here, from this proto-prophecy of of the Torah, we can see that the prophets and the writings continue to expand this identity of Israel as a bride. Of course, we're reading in the Song of Songs where the, the bride identity is used more than once. But what we would like to do is, in these prophecies that describe the end of days, and specifically as Israel being seen as the bride of Messiah, can we work out why some of the prophecies seem to be less supernatural to us uh, than others? Because some of these prophecies that we read about, they sound like a very natural world that we continue to live in. Now, there are some qualities of this millennial world that are definitely semi-supernatural. We know that the aging process slows down. We know that the process of entropy slows down. We know that the adversary, that evil inclination is bound for a thousand years so that it really takes out the conflict inside of human beings that strive against the Holy Spirit. But let's let's look at Isaiah 66, 18. I, I want to read this to you. And as we're reading it, think about how natural it sounds in your ears. How just not everyday life, but it's not really sounding like clouds and harps. Okay. So Isaiah 66, 18 says, for I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. So this prophecy is about the gathering of nations and tongues. In fact, in John's vision, doesn't he see those from among every nation, tribe, and tongue? That yes. In Revelation, we get more of the, the cloud and heart sort of video of the gathering. But here in Isaiah, the gathering of the nations, tribes, and tongues, it sounds just a little more natural. It says, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them. To the nations, right? Then he lists them Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tuva, and Yavan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, right? And remember in a past lesson, we defined the coastlands as other nations. Uh, they don't, it's not specifically a coastline. It's a nation defined by a coastline, right? So the distant nations, the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame or seen my glory. Now, that's, that's pretty direct. It tells us that somehow the message of Messiah Yeshua and the kingdom of heaven didn't reach everywhere. It might have gone into all nations, but apparently among some of those nations, there were people who either did not hear the message or the message was delivered in such a way that they could not perceive the fame and the glory of the Holy One, which would be reprehensible if somehow we were the messengers of Messiah Yeshua and they didn't see us as any different or see any of the glory of the Father reflected in our lives. He says, they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren From all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules and on camels. To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Right now, that's the part to me that gets even more real in terms of, you know what, people still get around in some places on horses and buggies and uh, mules and camels. But it's not the usual thing in most parts of the world. We have automobiles, we have trains, we have ships, Um, which, of course, Isaiah probably wouldn't have seen transportation in the same way that we do in this day and time. But nevertheless, I think what he's listing here is types of transportation, like the horses and chariots in scripture, specifically identified with royalty and the military, military transports, litters, like ambulances, mules. Wealthier people might have a mule or a donkey. Maybe if you weren't so wealthy, you, you would have a donkey instead of a mule. But they were like the personal automobiles and then camels were for commercial transport. He used those to transport goods. So they were the, the rocket trains at the time. But that part of it, it sounds like, okay, we're riding animals? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's just using those as symbolic of types of transportation. But remember, we said that in Genesis 10:5, in a lesson past, that these coastlands were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and to their nations, right? So if we match up Isaiah 66 with Genesis 10 5, it appears that not much has changed in a few thousand years, more than a few thousand. In the millennial kingdom of Messiah, those boundaries of the coastlands, they don't disappear, now, we're not real clear on whether the nation's boundaries are going to be redrawn according to the original assignments of Genesis 10-5, going back to that proto-prophecy of, of who the nations are and what their boundaries are. Is everything redrawn according to the way it was in the beginning? Or we know that the Holy One loves growth, right? So maybe the the peoples have shifted. Maybe their languages have changed. And maybe the lines are redrawn. Uh, according to how those people groups have shifted and how they have their languages in common. And again, I don't even know if that's important. All that we do know is important is that the boundaries of Zion, of Israel and the Holy City, that those boundaries are established and respected. We've covered that before, how that's so important to recognize that, that those boundaries are not for human beings to tinker around with, so that's my question. Would the nations be redrawn, or would they simply keep in place the current boundaries at the time? Regardless of how they're drawn, Isaiah prophesies that all the nations and tongues will gather. And in this case, you know, it's it's we have the Tower of Babel where the people gathered and then were split into nations and tongues. But the only event that we know fits this prophecy, at least in a positive light, is the prophecy of the Holy Temple being the house of prayer for all nations. So when that Holy Temple was dedicated in the time of Melech King Solomon, that's what he prayed. He said, you know, wherever people are out there in the nations, if they will turn toward this, your holy house, and pray, you know, please hear them but it's also a place that the nations were allowed to come and bring sacrifices. This was true even in the first century, during the time of Yeshua and the the second temple. Even those from among the nations could come, and they, they couldn't literally offer the sacrifice themselves, but they could pay for that sacrifice to be made on their behalf. What we know is that, yes, the prophet Zechariah, he verifies that the nations in the millennial time will come up to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. They will come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. And in that sense, Zechariah is describing to us, again, another very natural unfolding of end-time prophecy, that it is very much still a natural world Now, how do you get all those nations in there might be the question. That might be a little more supernatural. But in a millennium, a time that is seeing a perfecting and a repair of the physical world, we see that the nations will gather at the Feast of Sukkot. And I don't think we have any reason to believe they wouldn't gather also at Passover and Shavuot, that those appointed times, there's three appointed times that Israel is supposed to go up. The the key, too, as we look back at what Isaiah said, is that there will be signs among them, among the nations, and there will be survivors sent to the nations to declare his glory. So where are they hearing about the glory of the house of prayer for all nations? There's clearly people being sent to them. And that was my question. What kind of people are these? Are these people who have been, are these the righteous who were resurrected from the dead or being sent out on these teaching missions? Are these people who just simply survived by not being rebellious, by repenting? Don't know. He doesn't really tell us that. There, there might be some clues, but I don't I want to say I'm not going to presume I know who exactly these people are who were going out there teaching. And we know specifically they must be teaching them to observe the feasts of Adonai. That part of the world. It's not changed any. So my question is, how do I reconcile what we've been studying in the Song of Songs and what Paul teaches us, especially in the letter to the Thessalonians, and we get little snippets from Yeshua and the other apostles about how the bride is going to be gathered together into the cloud, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. He says we'll be gathered in the cloud and that we will remain in the presence of Adonai. And it says, so shall we ever be with Adonai? All right. I think that's where maybe we might come up with the idea that, you know, we're just floating in clouds around the throne, like we're ever going to be in his presence, which I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I thought that sounded super boring, like just floating, you know, harps, that's it. Didn't really get it when I was a kid. I'm not sure I still do get it, but I'm getting a better picture, I think, uh, at this point. But how do we reconcile these two things? how are the nations gathered? They, they, somebody has clearly taught them the message. How are they being gathered coming back to Jerusalem? And who's doing this teaching? Are we in the presence of Adonai? Are we confined to the holy city? Are we confined to our inheritance in the land of Israel? Are we confined to the garden, which we know that the garden and the temple mount will marry at that time? They will once again fuse the way that they were back in the beginning at the creation. Is that what it means to be in the present? That because our bodies are resurrected, we will be able to pass into and out of that realm so that we can be active in this new Jerusalem as well as active in the, the natural world, just like Yeshua. And again, I don't think it's an either or question. I think we have to learn from both types of prophecies because a 1,000 years is a long time. You can, you can go back and search and look at what was going on a 1,000 years ago. Well, a 1,000 years ago, the Vikings were terrorizing Europe and beyond. The Byzantine Empire still had ships sailing in the Mediterranean. It was the early period of castles and kings. We all know what happened in 1066, right? We know that the samurai... Class were just beginning to arise. We know the Mayans, that their empire had not even yet reached the pinnacle of its power. That's a thousand years ago, guys. The stuff you read in your history textbooks. So, yes, we have come a long way in a thousand years. Now, just imagine how fast progress will be made in a thousand years with King Messiah ruling and reigning in the earth. And not only ruling and reigning in the earth, but also ruling and reigning in an earth where the adversary is bound and he's not going to get the kickback and the conflict and the wars and so forth. He's going to put an end to all that and set up his kingdom and it'll be a kingdom of peace. Yet, we know the nations will have a long way to go in this millennium. Imagine a time when you first started studying the word or when you first were saved And look back, depending on how many years that's been, at how far you've come. And so you can see, even with a willing participant, it takes a while to learn things. So we we have this text in Exodus, uh, a bride standing at the foot of Mount Sinai saying, we will do and we will hear, we will obey the covenant. And we have Moses functioning as, you know, the mediator, the one leading the bride out to meet the bridegroom. Jeremiah 2 2, I think, is another reference where he says, You know, I remember how you followed me in the wilderness, in the love of your betrothals to a land not sown. And so, yes, it's from there that that identity as a bride picks up and it goes all the way into the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the righteous are also seen as the bride. But if we take it back to the first mention, of that relationship there at Mount Sinai, the identity of the bride was Israel and anyone else standing there with her, remember a mixed multitude came up out of Egypt and they said, we will do and we will hear it. They agreed to the terms of the covenant and they agreed voluntarily. So she was saved from Egypt and then bound into a covenant, but only through her free will. And so, yes, the New Testament scriptures extend that, they expand upon that identity. So this particular event, as we're looking backward, that particular event is seen as the time, at least in the Jewish tradition, when the bride will be sealed. And so that time is the Feast of Shavuot, Shavuot. And it's understood at Shavuot, at Mount Sinai, that it was more than just the Israelites who received the offer of the covenant, of the commandments, that everyone all over the world could hear it. I believe there might be a similar event before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord, as it's called. I believe there will be one worldwide hearing about three days before Messiah Yeshua returns. I believe that it's that's, that's going to be, quote unquote, the vo- voice of Elijah. Even the Israelites were warned to prepare for what they would hear at Shavuot. And you say, okay, now wait a minute. I've done a little bit of studying of the feasts And what I know about the feast and what Paul says about the feast is that the resurrection of the righteous dead occurs on the Feast of Trumpets on Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah. So are you telling me that they're sealed on Shabuot, but they're not resurrected from the dead until the Feast of Trumpets? That appears to be what the scripture is telling us. So a sealing doesn't indicate an instant resurrection, it's a preparation for the resurrection. And remember, Shavuot does not stand alone as a feast. It will always, always, always be connected to Passover. So what are the odds of arriving at Shavuot to take on that identity of a bride if you somehow bypassed Passover? If you bypass salvation, that there, there might be a problem there. Maybe, maybe not. If you're on that path, I think the message is you're not likely to get off of it somewhere between Shavuot and the Feast of Trumpets. And you say, okay, well, the righteous dead are resurrected at the Feast of Trumpets. They're gathered into the cloud at that time to remain in the presence of Adonai, whatever that means, whether it means, you know, we are floating on clouds with harps, which I don't think is going to happen. I think it's talking about the gathering into the cloud like they were gathered into the cloud in the wilderness, They were gathered as a people that they began to walk in a semi-supernatural state, right? Um, More so at the resurrection of the dead than in the cloud in the wilderness. But we can see the proto-prophecy in the cloud in the wilderness that already they were eating miraculous food, drinking miraculous water. Their clothes miraculously didn't wear out. Their shoes miraculously didn't wear out. So, yes, definitely their bodies went through uh, some transformation, their natural world went through some transformation. If they weren't in the cloud, it seemed like they reverted back to a completely natural state. With the resurrected body, it seems like you will retain that supernatural transformation, no matter where you go. Because we're looking at Yeshua as the example. So you say, what happens if if the righteous dead are resurrected on the Feast of Trumpets? Why do we do Yom HaKippurim? Why do we do the Day of Atonement or coverings well, it's understood that there's going to be more lukewarm than righteous, <laughs> and we can see that in Yeshua's message to the, the assembly at Laodicea, the seventh assembly. He said, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, they they have not prepared themselves for the resurrection of the dead, and therefore, if they were to try to penetrate into that cloud, they would get spit back out. And he's like, okay, you've got 10 days. You've got 10 days between the feast of trumpets and Yom will ring when the gates will close. What happens during that 10 days is thought to be the final opportunity for the lukewarm to repent and to return to the covenant to once again, take on that identity. I almost wonder if this is just another layer of the 10 virgin parable where five were ready and they immediately went into the presence And then you have some out there wandering around, but apparently they don't even know where to go. There's a caution there. Don't wait until the Feast of Trumpets to repent and return, uh, because the gates do close. At the conclusion of Yom HaKippurim, seems like the the virgins in the parable were a little late. The gates had already shut on them, and they were going to have to go through some tough things with the wicked. It sounds like even the lukewarm may have to go through some tough things with the wicked. And it's not those who are totally wicked, who will never will repent. That's a a different story. You know, like what happens to them? Just keep reading Revelation. You'll see what happens to them. But the sealed righteous during this 10 days, we say, well, what are they doing for 10 days while they're waiting on the lukewarm to do their work of repentance and for the gates of Yom HaKippurim to close? so that the whole nation can be gathered at Yom HaKippurim. Remember, you're you're judged as an individual on the Feast of Trumpets, and you're judged as a nation at Yom HaKippurim. So apparently it takes 10 days for the full gathering uh, to take place before those gates close. And so the question is asked, all right. What are the those sealed righteous who are already resurrected from the dead? What are they doing during that ten days while the the lukewarm are trying to find their oil? Uh, some sources say that this is where the the paradigm from last week's Torah portion, Mishpatim, that it has the instructions for a Hebrew servant, and it's not really a slave. Even though a lot of English translations will use the word slave, it's not the same thing. It's an indentured servant is probably the closest we can come to how that function. Basically, you're selling a certain number of years of your labor to an employer. Or if you couldn't pay your debts, then the courts could order that your labor be sold to another Hebrew under no circumstances more than six years. You would go free, you know, in the seventh year, no matter what. And then even if you were one of those servants that says, hey, I like my employer. I'm not leaving here. I got it too good here. Then in any case, even if you had had your ear pierced, you would still have to go back to your land holding in the 50th year and the Yobel or the Jubilee year. And so they say Israel is compared to this indentured servant. When the shofar sounds, because remember the, the Feast of Trumpets signals a new year, whereas the first of Nisan, the Passover month, signals a new month. There's two separate sets of things that go on. So you have concurrent calendars, but one is teaching you monthly things and one is teaching you annual things. The Feast of Trumpets signals the turn or the going out of the year, especially as it pertains to this service, this labor, because you, you didn't really buy the person, you bought the person's labor. Just like an employer today, you know, they don't buy a person, they pay the person for the labor, right? And then the Torah just gives us the conditions like, what are you supposed to supply for this person? What are the limitations and so forth? So what are these people doing? Well, they're about to go free. They have reached their seventh year. They have fulfilled the terms of their service. So when the shofar sounds on the Feast of Trumpets, technically, they're already free, but they're not going to go anywhere for 10 days. For 10 days, it's thought that the the Hebrew servant, she will spend those 10 days feasting with her master and his family, having a great time, and then there's going to be a jubilee shofar, right? There's going to be the last trump, the last trumpet, on the Feast of Trumpets. But then on Yom HaKubrim, there's gonna be something called the Great Trumpet. And it's when the great trumpet sounds that signals the Yobel, the year of Jubilee. And so now, even though she's already free from this time, now she's going to go back to her original land of inheritance. She's gonna go back to her own territory in the land. Will she be back for Sukkot? I'm sure she will but she might make a quick trip home to to see the new digs. She might have been indentured and, and absent for a long time. And you say, well, okay, so while the righteous resurrected dead are feasting with King Messiah and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the famous people of scripture, while that feast is going on in the presence of Adonai as they're eating and drinking during those 10 days, you've got the lukewarm running around looking for oil. What about the wicked? It's not good. It's not good. Okay, <laughs> uh, there, there's going to be yes, a, a serious decimation of the population of those who will not repent. But Zechariah chapter fourteen verse six, it clarifies that there will be some people left from among the nations. You know, some sources say there will be um, a third part that passes through that survives. Some say that this is actually, you know, the, the the righteous that are going to survive. I'm sure we probably won't know the details of that till it happens. And we probably don't need to. We just need to prepare ourselves. But here's what Zechariah promises. He says, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, so we want to put those two things together. Zechariah is very precise uh, because he's teaching of a return to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the House of Adonai, to the Feasts of Adonai. But Isaiah is more of, he's he's looking at the bigger picture. He's looking at the world and what's happening out there in the world. Something is happening out there in the world that's going to motivate the nation's to go where Zechariah is saying they're going. So if you put those two prophecies together, Isaiah says, people are out there, they need instruction. They're going to get instruction. Whatever they hear in that instruction is going to cause what Zechariah is prophesying. And then Isaiah comes back and he gives us more specific information like Zechariah. Yes, there's going to be survivors in the millennium. There's going to be survivors who had yet to hear the message or had yet to see the glory of the message. And there's also going to be survivors, maybe the bride herself. Maybe it'll be the lukewarm who found the royal. I don't know. We, we, We don't want to make out God's lists for him. That's the last thing we want to do. But we know that there will be people dispatched in the millennium to teach the word to the nations. They'll need to be instructed in the word in order to know how to approach the holy city and the power of the presence that's abiding there. You can't just walk into Jerusalem any old way like you can today at that time because the presence will abide there. It would be like Nadav and Abihu going into the holy place without proper authorization. It'll just bust out on you and kill you. So in order to preserve their lives, so that they can come up and worship, they'll have to be instructed in holiness. But they will be coached, mentored, taught to a place where that desire will grow in them to keep the feasts. Isaiah 2, 3 says, many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it doesn't look like much has changed. When Yeshua walked this earth, he was always teaching and reasoning with people in Jerusalem at the feasts. And it sounds like nothing's going to change. He is going to keep teaching and reasoning with people in Jerusalem at the feasts. But how are they going to approach? At this point, you can't just come in in old way. You can't come in with total ignorance of sin. Remember, the power and the the full power and glory of Adonai, it can kill them, maybe even before they stick a foot inside a gate. So remember, the the 12 tribes of Israel, the setup out in the wilderness, was a prophecy of how they would judge from the 12 gates of Jerusalem. And therefore, you would have Israel helping them to make sure they were prepared to come inside, that they were in a proper state of purification, of holiness, and so forth. It's it's a preparation thing. So if they've been taught out there among the nations, if they've been prepared, then once they arrive in Jerusalem, you know, you can challenge them a little bit, see if they know what they're doing. And it might be that they arrive with those very mentors, because we're going to look at a a passage that describes the return and the vehicles of return, like we saw in Isaiah. Uh, But it looks like they'll be bringing their own teachers with them to the feast like if you had the privilege of teaching them about the feast then they will want you to travel with them to Jerusalem to observe the feast It only really makes sense it's kind of like let's say you're a basketball coach and let's say you're you're coaching the team you know you start back in the month of november and you're you're with them in practice every day but shabbat get them ready get them in uniform Make sure they know how to run the plays, and then you don't go to the game with them. <laughs> it, it looks like they go to the game. Uh, they they get the people ready, and then they actually go up with them to the feasts, which would be really cool. But the holiness. Why we're saying they need to be prepared for the holiness that's expected in the holy city, because Zechariah fourteen twenty says, "In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses." Even the horses will be holy. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. So even the everyday pots and pans in Jerusalem and Judah will have the high degree of holiness as the bowls that are used on the altar. And it says, everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. It's like there's a relationship between those who come to sacrifice in the holy city and the bride, Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, It says, when the nations come to celebrate, they will cook festive meals. So when you go to Jerusalem for Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, in ancient times, they would take their sacrifices in there and then a portion. You know they do give to certain people, but they also take portions and they throw a big barbecue. Is pretty much the way that it went. So you would throw this big barbecue with uh, a portion of your sacrifice for your family, for your friends. You know, if you've got Levites, priests, strangers, aliens, orphans, widows, everybody come and let's have a party. Messiba uh, in Hebrew. So those festive meals do inquire, do require cooking and eating. And if you've ever been to ancient um, Shiloh, where the, the tabernacle stood, if you've just walked around that hill, you realize pottery is like gravel. It's so common there. And as long as you're in sight of where the tabernacle stood, you will find pottery, smashed pottery. It's like gravel, there's so much of it. Well, what they would do is, as after they finished eating their meal made from the sacrifice, they would smash the plate. Because now the feast meal plates were holy. They had been used to eat a holy meal and celebration. And because they were only for holy use and they were in clay, they would go ahead and smash them. So in the future, the nations who come up to Jerusalem will have the opportunity to partake in those holy feasts. Who's going to prepare them to do this? Who's going to prepare them to come in this state of holiness to hear Yeshua teach? and share in the holy meals. When well, we go back to Isaiah, we'll go back to our first text. He says, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. What time is it, is the question. I would say at the feast, based on what Zechariah saw. And they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and will send survivors from them to the nations. So, like I said, I, I'm not real clear on whether the sign is taken from among uh, the actual bride? Is it from maybe those who were lukewarm? We don't we don't know who these people are exactly. Is it those who repented during the ten days? They they knew what to do. They just weren't doing it, and then they went and did it. So you know it, it turned out better. Whoever it is, they're able to teach the Torah, and their skin is going to be full of the glory of Adonai, and that's what he says there that they will be able to see his glory. He says, I'll gather nations, tribes, and come. they shall come and see my glory. Well, in order to come up to Jerusalem and see his glory, they've already seen some of his glory. Not as heavy, not as strong. But he says, these people who go and teach, they will declare my glory among the nations they're going to go tell of his fame among the nations and in them they are going to see something of the glory of Adonai so much so that seeing that glory in them and hearing that message from them is going to motivate them to want to go up to Jerusalem to see the the full power of his glory in Jerusalem which is pretty cool so we know that the torah the word of the lord is going to go out it's going to go out through people who are competent and proclaiming the Torah and the word. And we know that they will have transformed in some way because they will have some of his glory. And there will be like a sampler of the glory that, that exists in Jerusalem. And the little play on word there, the glory, the light, it's thought that um, in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve didn't need clothes because they're the skin that they had emanated light. Their garments were light, which is spelled with an aleph, or. And then after they sinned, after they fell down into a strictly natural world, then they were given the garments of or, which is spelled with an ein, almost exactly the same pronunciation. It's like animal skin. Some little hairier than others. Nevertheless, there there will be a restoration of the glory of Adonai that can shine through our skin when we're resurrected and so in if it happens to be us if they see us then our resurrected bodies for sure will emanate glory and light like they did at the creation so the survivors from among the nations who need to hear the good news of Yeshua in the Torah they will have people who will be signs things they can see. A sign is something you see. They will be educated in the Torah, and they will learn the critical details of holiness. You get that out of the book of Vayikra or Leviticus. They'll be coached in that so that when the time comes to gather them, Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot, then they will know how to approach properly. So there will be people who prepare the survivors from the nations to attend the feasts in holiness and to rejoice in the feasts. And I think this is maybe why we were born where we were born and why we speak the languages that we speak. We know the language, we know the culture, we know the local customs, we know the history of our location where we were born, and we can teach in a known tongue. And even though that may not be our home, we may have an inheritance in Israel that we've been released back to. Maybe we're on a rotation basis. Maybe we'll spend part of the time enjoying our inheritance land, and there might be times that he asks us to go out on special teaching missions. And the only reason I say this is so you'll think about why it's so important for us to learn every bit of the word that we possibly can in preparation for our assignments. If he's going to send us to people to declare the fame of night, do we know how to do that? His fame, I mean, it's contained in His Word. That's why the Torah, the Word of the Lord is going out. Do we know how to handle His Word enough to proclaim it and for people to see His glory in it when we proclaim it? And they're called, like I said, they're called as signs. There's something visible. And that Hebrew word ot for sign, sometimes it means a miracle. They will see us as miraculous beings. It can also mean evidence. We are evidence that there is a resurrection in Yeshua. It also means an appearing, like we can visibly appear to them. They can see us, like you can see me, right? I'm not a ghost. Just like Yeshua asked the the disciples when he when he appeared after his resurrection, he's like, "You can see me, right? You know, just touch me, stick your hand in here, Thomas. It's it's okay. I'm really here. It's a glorious appearing. It's a miracle. It's evidence. I'm right here." And so for those among the nations who didn't see the glory of Messiah Yeshua before as the glory of the Father, they're going to have a chance to see it in the resurrected skins of their Torah teachers. And I think they start with these little signs of glory, these little teachers who are going to motivate them to prepare to go up to hear Yeshua at the appointed times and to worship in his presence. But that's important. A sign has to be seen. It's not always comprehended, but it has to be seen and it takes away alibis. Like if you've seen it, you don't have an alibi anymore. And it's likely, I believe, that these righteous teachers will have bodies like Yeshua's able to function in both realms, the natural world that we see and the supernatural realm, which is really hard to see right now. But we look at Yeshua to understand it. he could go into and out of realms whenever he wanted to, or whenever he needed to, is more exact, whenever he needed to. So if somebody were trying to kill him, he would just disappear. He'd just walk into that other realm and they couldn't see him. If he wanted to walk on water because it was a little stormy, he walked on water. If he needed to get somewhere fast and he wanted to, he could make the boat go from here to over there in a moment. But otherwise... Unless there was a pressing need, he lived a very natural, visible life. He ate, he drank, he was comfortable in either realm. He came in the flesh. And so we will have that kind of flesh too, transformed. So I think this is why it sounds to us like a very natural existence, that we're not going to be relying on superpowers to get around, unless it's just necessary. I would like to do some flying, I'll confess. So far, I've only been able to do that in my dreams and airplanes, but... You know, the idea <laughs> it is just very attractive. But there won't be any need, apparently, to, to be roaming around the earth using superpowers all the time. We can walk with our students like Yeshua walked with his students. We can ride with our students, whether it's a donkey or a car, I don't know. Yeshua rode donkeys. It's okay. And I think the nations will be so grateful for this message that they will look at their transportation systems, and when it's time to go up to Jerusalem to make a pilgrimage, I think they're going to commandeer every kind of transportation that will get them to the holy city. It says, then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters on mules and on camels. To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So yes, refitted war vehicles, ambulances, commercial vehicles, personal vehicles. Now, I don't know. Is there a parking lot in Israel big enough for all that? I don't know. I I don't know. Like I said, we'll just have to see when we get there. But the important thing is that it's telling us that the survivors among the nations, their hearts have changed, and they are seeking the word and keeping the feasts. And Isaiah, he even prophesies that just like Yeshua was our clean sacrifice, those who have been sent as signs to the nations, those little glories, will be brought back to the temple as clean grain sacrifices. And grain often represents the seed of the word. So those who lead the nations to Jerusalem will be acknowledged as Yes, the image bearers of Yeshua and the Holy One because they bear his word in their vessels. The resurrected bodies are clean vessels. They maintain them in holiness. Like it says the clean vessels in Jerusalem and Judah. So that takes us back to our footsteps of Messiah working text from the Song of Songs. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down. Journey down in Hebrew is tashuri. That's the verb. But the scholars see a secondary reading to Teshuri. They're using 1 Samuel 9 7 as an example, where Saul says to his servant, Behold, if we go, what shall we bring to the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? He's saying, We're going to go to this great prophet. We need a gift to take with us. That Hebrew word is teshurah. So there's a a relationship, journey down. Come with me, my bride. What does she do? She journeys down to the holy city. And what is she? She's a gift. She's a gift brought back to the nations because the nations will know there's no greater gift they can bring to King Messiah and the Holy One than the gift of their own people, the gift of the bride. What greater gift could you bring to the bridegroom? Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.